This is the Asade Podcast Channel. Audio pills to get inspired. Buen dia. Good morning. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, to have uh, a conversation this morning with with a distinguished guest who is visiting us from Washington D.C. with uh, David Wasserman. Um, who is the house editor uh, and political analyst of the Cook Political Report. Um, uh, David is, uh, is a well-renowned uh, forecaster in political elections. Um, originally from New Jersey, now based in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, him and his team have a... a a wonderful track record of of, of of successful forecasting. He has worked with with the renowned uh, Nate Silver at 538, um, and he uh, essentially uh, what uh, what they do with the Cook Political Report is intelligence and insights regarding all different political elections in the United States. Um, uh, what uh, so uh, we're gonna take the advantage of having him over here. He has, I understand, come over to Barcelona for pleasure, but we're going to make him work a little bit at least at this, at this time in the morning. And we want to talk about United States politics. Um, first of all, thank you for, for being here and sparing some time for us. Bon dia. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me. Uh, I know that the, I wanted to say at the outset, I know the biggest political issue in Barcelona is getting rid of the tourists. So I want to apologize on behalf of of me and my wife. Uh, uh, I'd also like to introduce my wife, Katie, who's, who's here as well. Uh, she's a dietitian, uh, a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes educator in Washington, D.C., <laughs> but uh, she hasn't been doing a very good job because I've gained about 10 pounds since I, uh, since I landed here. The All food right. is too good. Wonderful. So um, let's get down to, um, to, uh, to, your, to your views and your uh, insights on, on, on the American political scene. So perhaps we can start off with the midterm elections. So uh, what happened there and what is your interpretation of what went there or what went on there? So there are a lot of takeaways from this year's midterm elections, which had a very, very high turnout. Uh, this was the first year since 1914 that more than half of America's eligible voters participated. We had a 50.1% turnout, which is very low by European standards, but very high for a midterm election by U.S. standards, where most voters don't bother to show up in an off-year, a non-presidential election. But this was really two midterm elections in one. Uh, this was a case of a, of a very divergent outcome between the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Uh, Democrats uh, had a blue wave in the U.S. House where they uh, won back control of, of the House, went picking up 40 seats. That's the largest gain for the Democratic Party since 1974 when Richard Nixon was facing impeachment. Uh, and in, in the Senate, simultaneously, Republicans picked up two seats. And you might ask, why was that outcome possible? How could Democrats do so well in the House and yet so poorly in the Senate? Well, it really comes down to America's political geography because we have a monumental, a very large urban versus rural divide in American politics right now, where Republicans are doing very, very well in rural areas and small towns and mid-sized cities that feel forgotten and left behind, 
Democrats are doing very, very well in urban areas, in uh, suburban areas, and in places where there are a lot of voters with a college degree. Uh, I don't know how many of you might be familiar with the, uh, with the supermarket chain Whole Foods Market, uh, the organic grocer uh, largely in America, but Democrats did very, very well anywhere that was within a 20-minute drive of the Whole Foods Market uh, in, in 2018. Uh, and most of the seats that they gained in the House were very upscale suburbs uh, where voters were upset with two, two Republican proposals in particular. Uh, the health care bill uh, that Republicans had sponsored in, in 2017 to try to repeal Obamacare, Obama's health care law, uh, uh, particularly uh, prote protections for people with pre-existing medical conditions. And the second issue was taxes. Republicans had, had uh, succeeded in uh, passing a, a new tax law in America, but uh, it penalized a lot of the highest income areas with the highest state and local property taxes. Places like California and New Jersey, uh, and, and particularly voters who, uh, who, who pay a lot of local taxes. And so there was a backlash to that, particularly in those districts and in, in places that used to be very Republican, we now see Democrats doing very well. Uh, Republicans only have one member of Congress from the entire state of New Jersey. Uh, they have only seven members of Congress left from the entire state of California, which has 55 representatives in Congress. So that gives you an idea of just how extreme the polarization in America has become. All right. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about branding and voting later, on, sure. which I think uh, might be in, of interest in this here in the business school. So uh, from here to the midterm, so what is, your, what is your idea of what might be happening in the next two years, and in particular with the next, uh, the next uh, um, uh, moment of elections, important elections, which are Trump's re-election? That's right. So there are a couple of clues for 2020 in, uh, in this year's election outcome. The first is, on the Democratic side, women did exceptionally well. And there's a sense among Democrats in America, the opposition to Trump, that the best way to send a message opposing Trump is to send a woman. Uh, there were 102 women elected to Congress this year. 89 of them are Democrats. Only 13 of them are Republicans. In fact, uh, the number of Republican women in Congress went down in 2018, but the number of Democratic women in Congress went up by 46%. So this was truly the year of the woman, and I think it, it suggests that Democrats are going to be eager to, uh, to potentially nominate a female opponent again against Trump in 2020, although uh, it's unclear uh, which, which women will have the best chance at this, at this point. But there, there's also uh, a suggestion from this election that uh, that only a handful of states will decide who will win the 2020 uh, election. Uh, we saw Democrats do very, very well in, um, in certain, uh, certain uh, wealthy areas of, of the South and, uh, and suburbs that are, that are growing fast. But we didn't see Democrats do quite as well in parts of the, the Midwest that they lost ground in 2016 in. And so, uh, there will really only be six states, in my opinion, that will decide the winner of the 2020 presidential race. Uh, 
the, the three closest states from 2016, which are Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in the northern Midwest of the US, and then the sun, what I would call the Sun Belt three of Arizona, uh, Florida, and North Carolina. And those will also be very important. And it, yet the other 44 states that have the overwhelming majority of the population probably won't matter. In, because they're not going to move. Because they're they are already solidly for, for one, one candidate or the other. And it's a, very, it's, it's a very unique feature of American politics, our electoral college. But the reality is that uh, most voters' votes fundamentally don't matter in US presidential elections. So it comes down to a very small band of states. And when Democrats are thinking over the next year about who is best to oppose Trump, they have to think about who will do best in those particular states. Uh, any names we should be tracking? A few names? Give us, perhaps, uh, if we want to follow uh, American politics, are there any, any, any uh, politicians, upcoming politicians, we should point our attention to? So there are probably six or seven Democratic members of the Senate who look in the, in the mirror every morning and see uh, the next president. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, there are two names on the Democratic side that stand out uh, to me as the rising stars uh, of, uh, from 2018. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a new member of the House. Uh, she, uh, she unseated the number four ranking member of the Democratic leadership in the primary election back in June. Uh, she is 29 years old. She's the youngest woman ever elected to the House, and she'll represent the, Queen, uh, the Bronx and Queens in New York City. And she is already agitating on the left. Uh, she's trying to push the Democratic Party farther to the left. Now, by our Constitution, she's not eligible to run for president in 2020 because she's not old enough. Uh, you have to be 35 years old to run for president. Uh, and so, you know, in my opinion, the strongest possible Democratic nominee against Trump would be a young, charismatic woman without much of a political track record to attack. But she's not eligible. The other name that stands out to me is uh, Beto O'Rourke. And you'll be hearing a lot, a lot about uh, him over the course of the next year. I believe uh, he probably will run for president, even though he lost a race for Senate in Texas this year, uh, which a lot of people might say, well, if, if you lose a race for Senate, how can you run for president? That doesn't make any sense. But in this era of politics, you don't have to bring political credentials to the table to be taken seriously as a, as a candidate for president. And, uh, and Beto O'Rourke uh, came very close as a Democrat to winning in Texas, which is uh, remarkable, given that Texas has been such a Republican state for, for the past several decades. Uh, and he sparked a movement that inspired people not only in Texas, but across the country, uh, Barack Obama has had nice things to say about him recently. And he's drawn comparisons not only to Obama, but also to Bobby Kennedy, uh, JFK's brother. He has the, the looks, he has the charisma, uh, but he also has the, the common touch that a lot of Democrats don't have. Uh, because at one point during this campaign, he was uh, skateboarding around the parking lot of a, of a burger chain in Texas called Whataburger. And so a lot of young voters said, okay, well, this is a guy I can get behind. And they turned out to vote for him. Uh, the, the 
reason why he fell short in his election was that he didn't quite get the level of Hispanic turnout and support that he needed. He, uh, despite his nickname of Beto, he, he actually is not Hispanic. Uh, he, he, his parents uh, gave him that nickname to help him fit into a very Hispanic city, El Paso, when he was growing up. So, uh, so you know, Republicans would say he's masquerading as a Hispanic. Great. So, um, with the, let's another question regarding the Democratic candidate. There, so, so there's a um, at least from this part of the world, there there is a little there is a debate regarding. So, what do you think the best Democrat candidate um, would be? Are we do we need apart from woman charismatic, etc. Do we need something ideologically? Do we need someone in the middle that is capable of attracting also some uh, doubting Republicans or, or non-Democrats? Uh, non or do you need someone Ocasio-like, which is uh, hard or, or at least more hard on the left? What do you think would be, make better sense? It's an excellent question. And a mistake that a lot of pundits and journalists in, in Washington, D.C. make is to think about politics on a purely left versus right spectrum, when in fact the divide in America these days is more <coughs> elites versus anti-elites. It's more haves versus have-nots. And I'm not sure Democrats really grasp that right now. Uh, they certainly didn't in 2016 when uh, uh, Donald Trump gained a lot of ground by, by uh, railing against not only the elites in the Democratic Party, but also the Republican Party. Uh, he, his appeal was that he was for the common man and he wasn't, wasn't beholden to any wealthy interests or political insiders in DC. Well, in 20, uh, 2020, uh, there are a number of Democrats uh, who are mentioned uh, who are more moderate conventional candidates like Joe Biden, uh, for example, uh, he is leading the uh, the initial poll in Iowa, which is a very important early primary or early caucus state uh, in uh, in the nomination process for the Democrats. But at the same time, he would be well into his 70s. He would be 78 years old in in 2020, uh, and that doesn't exactly say time for change. Uh, so, in my opinion, it's going to be more important for Democrats to nominate someone who can be seen as a political outsider um, rather than simply whether they're left or right. And that's why Beto O'Rourke could, could be uh, very formidable as a Democrat, even without holding elected office, that probably is a, is a benefit for him. Some of the other people I would, I would pay attention to uh, are uh, Kamala Harris from California, who hasn't been in the Senate that long, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, Amy Klobuchar, a senator from, from Minnesota. So there are some others in the mix as well who are trying to capture that populist mentality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So we'll, um, we'll have time for questions from the audience uh, in the last 20 minutes. But let me, let's, let's go into some of the key issues that are, that are in the conversation in the United States. You, you mentioned, well, perhaps not an issue or a subpopulation. You mentioned um, Beto, and he didn't attract the Hispanic Latino vote. So how is, how is that uh, voting pattern? How does that happen in the US? Uh, it's sometimes um, 
confusing from this part mm -hmm. of the world to look at that. You have some conservative uh, streams within that group. Uh, you look at the, the Cuban exile and, and that sort of thing. You see also some conservative attitudes uh, mm -hmm. related to religion, but at the same time, they tend to vote or, or they sometimes are assimilated to the Demo Democrat side. So how, what, what, what role does that population uh, play in politics? Another excellent question. So the Hispanic vote in the US is complex because there isn't just one Hispanic vote, but many subgroups uh, that are important in different states. And so uh, first of all, it's important to, to remember that Hispanic voters are underrepresented, uh, not as many of them in the key states that decide who's president. And so you know, over half of, of America's Hispanic voters live in California, Texas, and New York. And we already know that California and New York are safe states for the Democrat. They're never going to vote Republican. So it doesn't matter how many Hispanics really turn out and vote uh, or who they vote for in those states. Texas uh, got closer in 2018, but it's still really not um, a state that Democrats are likely to win in 2020. And so the Hispanic vote in Texas, you know, perhaps not as important to decide who's president. Florida is the one state that is very close at the presidential level, but also includes a, a very significant Hispanic population, about 16 to 17 percent of the, of the electorate in Florida, um, probably between 23 and 24 percent of the population in Florida. But about half of the Hispanic vote in Florida is Cuban-American. Traditionally, that's a very Republican group, um, very anti-Castro. And what we saw in 2016 was that Trump did, uh, did a little worse among Cuban-Americans than, uh, than past Republicans have, in part because uh, younger Cubans see themselves not as, as, as anti-Castro as their uh, grandparents, uh, they see themselves more culturally as Democrats because they're more socially liberal on issues like gay marriage and abortion. Uh, so they've, a, a number of them voted against Trump. But we saw Republicans do very well in Florida in this year's midterm election. That came as a surprise to Democrats. And one of the reasons they did well was when Trump came to Miami and reversed a lot of the new policies of Obama towards Cuba. Uh, he became more popular in the Cuban-American community. They saw him as, as you know, carrying the, 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 the banner for them in, in reversing uh, that, that decision to open up relations with Cuba. So uh, Republicans actually did fairly well. And uh, we saw another pattern uh, in, in uh, the non-Cuban Hispanic vote in Florida, which is that uh, the Republican governor of Florida, Rick Scott, uh, he spent a whole lot of money uh, t targeting the Venezuelan and Puerto Rican communities in Florida. And that allowed him to win enough of their votes to be able to win the Senate seat there. And that was a real, real uh, loss for Democrats because now uh, you know, they're, they're in the minority in the Senate by, by six seats. Um, they were only in the minority by two seats before. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, great. Uh, trade, I think that's another issue that we're all uh, worried or looking at, in particular from this business school. Um, so what is going on with trade in the United States? So we have the, the, the 
the hegemon that built the trading system that followed World War II. Um, and not only that, you find a Republican president doing things which are very confusing from a trade perspective, at least outside uh, view. So what is, what, what is um, how are Trump's trade policies, uh, how are they being interpreted by American people um, in general? And what is the attitude towards trade that, you are that we can find in the US uh, right now? It's a complicated subject. Uh, in the US as it is here. But uh, Trump ran on a very protectionist platform and, and there's no issue he personally cares more about, if you ask people close to him, uh, than, than the issue of trade. He believes that we're long overdue in confronting other countries with tariffs. And so his imposition of tariffs uh, on, on, uh, on steel and aluminum have uh, caused retaliatory tariffs particularly from China on soybeans, uh, on, on, uh, on pork, on a variety of other products. And we're also seeing that obviously uh, here in, in Europe with a uh, 45% tariff, for example, on Spanish olives. But there's really not an end in sight to the escalation of trade tensions. And the reason is that he's not seen a political backlash uh, from his, his new trade policies. The impact was very mixed in the 2018 elections. Uh, we saw uh, Democrats do well in several farm districts and districts that produce a lot of steel and aluminum, uh, or districts that, uh, that uh, need to buy a lot of steel and aluminum to manufacture products. Uh, for example, Democrats did very well in several House races in Iowa where tariffs are very unpopular. But we also saw Republicans gain seats in areas that were helped by uh, protectionist policies on steel and aluminum. And so in the state of Minnesota, which is a very rich iron producing state, uh, in southern Illinois, where there are steel mills, uh, Republicans actually gained ground and gained several seats. And so um, there was no clear message from the voters on trade from the midterm elections. And, uh, and as a result, that's unlikely to, to temper Trump's appetite for, uh, for, for new uh, aggression on, on trade. It'll be interesting in the next Congress, given that we have a divided Congress, where the Republicans control the Senate and the White House and the Democrats control the House, how is the trade issue going to play out? Because he has struck a deal with Canada and Mexico, uh, what he's calling the new NAFTA, uh, or the, uh, what he calls the U.S.-Mexico-Canada -Mex agreement, the USMCA. Well, he'll need the votes in Congress to approve his new deal with those two countries. And in order to do so, he'll need votes from Democrats in the House. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of deals he can strike with, uh, with the Democrats and their leader, Nancy Pelosi, who's likely to be the next Speaker of the House. The one area where I can see the parties coming to more agreement, perhaps, is on infrastructure spending. Democrats really want to spend a whole lot more money to rebuild America's roads, bridges, airports, and so forth. Trump really wants to get his trade deal done. But he's also not opposed to more deficit spending to achieve infrastructure. So if the parties can strike a deal on trade, I think it would also involve some additional spending. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what would that tr deal mean? Would it be? just to pass the UMCA, uh, which 
is could be reasonable or 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 for Democrats. I mean, it from it's it's minor changes have happened to NAFTA essentially, so that could more or less ha go through. But uh, would you expect some other agreements in trade, like uh, a common policy towards China or a, or a WTO reform or something like that? It's possible, uh, but it could be very difficult to to pass anything more through Congress given the short time frame uh, between now and when the presidential election really starts. Uh, we don't anticipate that much will get done during a presidential election year when tensions between the parties are very high. Uh, President Trump has, has engaged in a lot of rhetoric that, that uh, trade policy experts consider to be dangerous or outside the mainstream, particularly with regards to withdrawing from the WTO. Uh, I don't anticipate that, uh, that you know, he would ever have the votes in Congress to be able to follow through on a lot of the, the, uh, the lofty promises that he's making uh, to his voters. But I, I also see, uh, in, when I go to the Midwest in particular, the farmers who voted for Trump but are, are suffering from low commodity prices as a result of his tariffs, they're willing to give him time. The question is how long? Uh, they're saying, well, okay, he's, he's making progress on Canada and Mexico, so we're waiting to see what happens with China. But so far, he hasn't lost a lot of those voters. And you know, the, the question is, if we enter a recession and he really does begin to lose more of those voters, will his message on trade change? It could. Great. Uh, another question on foreign policy, um, uh, Russia. It's it's um, one thing. How how would you how do you explain something which is extremely uh, confusing for some, which, for many of us, which is um, so you have uh, a, a a classic rival at least for half a century of the United States being the Soviet Union and Russia. Or it's, and um, and how does a Republican voter or a Trumpian voter uh, or a Trump voter with uh, with a Republican sort of affiliation, which is in theory strong on 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 the uh, on the pride and the and the national um, security and, and and power of the United States, see the uh, meeting between putting. Putin and, and Trump, and that sort of almost, um, 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 well, at least doesn't re does not reflect that that power and, and pride that you would expect a an American president almost uh, subordinated uh, visually at some point. How does how does that voter uh, vote for Trump and, and does not rebel to that sort of submission at some point um, to of the U.S. towards Russia? First and foremost, and this isn't meant as an insult to, to, to Trump's voters in the US, but it's a fact that many of his voters don't pay a lot of attention to international politics. Uh, many of his voters are fundamentally not that political in terms of their daily lives, uh, and they don't think a lot about, about, uh, about Washington, DC. They're very frustrated with DC, and so his message in 2016 was very appealing. But these are casual, low-information voters in a lot of cases uh, who uh, 
in a, in a lot of cases, were born after the end of the Cold War and don't remember when we had such, such high tensions with, with, uh, with, with that part of the world. So the memory uh, on, on our relations with Russia and the Soviet Union, I'd argue, it is, is fading in a way that, uh, that has allowed Trump to, uh, to, to pivot as he has. There are all kinds of questions that the current investigation in Washington is trying to uncover. What, are, what was the relationship between his campaign and, and Russia and, and Putin's intelligence organizations in 2016? There's, there's a lot of evidence that, uh, that there was uh, extensive contact between, uh, b between them, whether it was indirect or direct. Uh, there's a question of Trump's business dealings in Russia and what, did he, what does he owe oligarchs, considering that he had a lot of projects uh, where he needed, uh, he needed a lot of money that banks in New York would not lend to him. So I suspect that, that the Mueller investigation that's ongoing, if it is allowed to reach its conclusion, will uncover a lot of unsavory evidence about, about Trump's past in that regard that might explain why his position on Russia has departed from the, 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 the Republican and Democratic line over the years. And yet, uh, a lot of Trump's support, I would argue, is simply a cult of personality. Uh, we've seen in polls that Vladimir Putin's uh, favorability rating among Republican voters in the United States has gone up from 12% two years ago to 36% uh, today. So Trump's rhetoric and his, his openness and his willingness to say, okay, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to work with our enemies and sit down and try and make progress on our relationship, uh, he's justified it by pointing to Obama and Obama's approach to Iran. But it has made a big difference in terms of how Vladimir Putin and Russia are perceived by Trump's base. Great. So I have... a. Uh Another dozen questions for you, but I'm going to hold them off, and I want to open the floor to um, to the audience in case there might be any any questions. Um, otherwise, I'll I'll continue to to uh, to hammer you with with more questions. Hi. You want to use the mic, perhaps? Good morning. Good morning. I wanted to ask you about turnout. Um, you mentioned it's gone up in the last election. Uh, what, uh, what groups have increased their turnout in this last election? And in parallel, I wanted to ask you, is it the, young, the younger generation? And what tendencies do you see there in terms of their political views? It is. It is the younger generation that's uh, increased its turnout. Now, when I was talking about, uh, about Hispanic turnout being relatively weak, in Texas and Florida and other places, it was actually much stronger than it was four years ago. Uh, it's still weaker than other groups, but it was a vast improvement over uh, 2014, the last time we had midterm elections. And so in that year, uh, I know it's, it's uh, almost unbelievable to some people, but 56% of senior citizens voted in 2014. Only 19.9% .9 of voters between 18 to 29 voted. We still don't have the final tallies from this year's election from our census, but it's likely that the youth turnout of eligible 
18 to 29 year olds went up from about 20% to somewhere in the 35 to 40% range, which is a vast improvement over the past. And this is a very democratic group. So that offers some hope to Democrats in 2020. Now, if you really dive into the 2016 election results and the groups where Hillary Clinton was weak, she did not succeed in inspiring young voters. Uh, they, they loved Bernie Sanders. And they were really ready to get behind his, his campaign for, for president. And she beat him in the primaries. And many of them stayed home. Uh, and likewise, she did not receive the same support that Obama had received from younger African Americans. She didn't receive the same support among younger Hispanics. Many of those groups stayed home. Uh, Trump was successful, I'd argue, in, uh, in, um, in defining Hillary Clinton as opposed to their interests. Uh, he was very effective at uh, sabotaging her campaign on social media. So uh, when I think about who could succeed in beating Trump in 2020, it's got to be someone who inspires that passion on the part of younger voters and particularly minority voters. Uh, and and you know, I, don't, I don't know that, that someone who's in their late 70s like Joe Biden or even at this stage, Bernie Sanders would quite be able to do that. I think it's got to be someone who presents a big, big contrast with Trump. It's going to be Obama. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. There's probably one Democrat who I could almost guarantee you would beat Trump, and that's Michelle Obama. Uh, but I, I, I don't think she'll, she has any interest in running. Great. So I'm, I'm, I'll jump in. So you were talking to me before about a very interesting project trying, and it's very um, relevant to business school, uh, an interesting project about consumer behavior and, and, and election and, and voting patterns. So you're saying brands and brand loyalty, and that could have some sort of relationship with, with voting. So tell us a little bit about that, and, 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 and what would be the key brands that well, you mentioned one before, Whole Foods. But what would be the key brands on each side of the spectrum? So uh, one of my side projects uh, has been to, uh, to try and find out which retail brands are the best predictors of where Democrats and Republicans will win support. Uh, I haven't yet tried a European version of this. So, uh, so maybe you can uh, suggest uh, some research projects for me. But what I did about five or six years ago was I uh, took a database of election results I had compiled going down to the, uh, the, the county level, which is you know, the, the next um, <laughs> geographic unit beyond states. And there are about 3,200 3, uh, counties in the, in the US. And then I merged it with a, uh, a GIS program, a geographic information systems um, application that could map out all kinds of retail chains stores, restaurants, supermarkets, uh, with at least 100 locations nationally. And what I found was that the best predictor of where Democrats live and vote is Whole Foods Market. Uh, but the, the best predictor of where Republicans live and vote is a, uh, is a restaurant called Cracker Barrel Old Country Store. And I'm not sure how many of you might have driven on an interstate highway in America and, uh, and seen a sign for a Cracker Barrel. But if you stop at one, it's, uh, it's got a lot of country music and a lot of uh, you know, down-home cooking. Like you can get chicken and biscuits for, uh, for, for less 
than uh, it costs to buy a, a quart of organic pomegranate juice at Whole Foods. <laughs> uh, and, and so uh, it's, it's a very uh, culturally uh, opposite chain to, to Whole Foods, but uh, the numbers are quite striking. In 1992, when Bill Clinton first won the White House over George H.W. Bush, who just passed away, uh, he won 59% of the counties that today have a Whole Foods market and 40% of the counties that today have a Cracker Barrel Old Country store. And that was a gap of about 19 points. Well, that gap has gone up every single election uh, between 1992 and 2016. Uh, and in 2016, Donald Trump won 76% of Cracker Barrels and 22% of Whole Foods, so a 54-point gap, almost triple the gap that we had in 1992. And in this year's congressional elections, Democrats uh, won 78% of Whole Foods locations and only 27% of Cracker Barrel locations. And, uh, and some people might ask, uh, well, what happens if a neighborhood has both of them? And there are, in fact, a few places in America uh, that, that, uh, where these stores are close together and they tend to be the most competitive uh, areas of the country, but they're uh, those, those areas are dwindling. We have sharper dividing lines than we used to. Wow. And you were, you were mentioning in your interview, internal interview for us, that um, there has been a ideological clustering, geographic clustering in the U.S. for the past uh, decades related to this um, issue of, 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 of Whole Foods and, and Crack and Barrel. So, uh, you're saying we're seeing people moving to ideologically resonant places and therefore there has been a splintering and a homogenization of, of the communities? And, and how, how did that work and, and what sort of effects that may have? So, uh, of course, when I uh, point to these retail chains, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm probably being uh, very cute, but what it comes down to is uh, educational attainment. Uh, who has a college degree. And uh, I think we probably noticed this in, in Europe as well, but uh, Americans who, uh, who, receive, who have received college degrees are tending to live in the same places, the same types of, of upper-income suburbs um, and near college, colleges and university towns. And those areas have become almost exclusively democratic and blue uh, in the country. But at the same time, uh, surrounding areas that are not doing as well economically are resenting uh, the, the places that are. And so uh, one of the uh, most mentioned potential Democrats in 2020 is Senator Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts. I don't know if anyone has, has, uh, has followed the controversy, but President Trump calls her Pocahontas because uh, he believes that she faked her Native American ancestry on her, on her uh, form when she was applying to teach at Harvard. Well, the, the biggest problem with her candidacy for Democrats isn't the whole firestorm over her ancestry. It's the fact that she's been a professor at, at Harvard teaching law for the last, you know, for, for 20 years. And that, in the eyes of a lot of voters, makes her an elite. Uh, someone who's out of touch with a lot of the country, even though she says that she's for the working, working class. So those, those dividing lines have definitely, um, definitely predicted uh, which party has done well. 
And that has effects on the, um, that combined with the, um, with news and the way we, 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 um, we consume information and the way we understand facts. How does that have an effect on, 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 these, on, on the way that these communities then vote? So we have a very, uh, very divided media culture in America, a bifurcation of our, of our media. Uh, the cable news networks in particular have had a, a very big role in the last 20 years of American politics where um, MSNBC has been the, the leading voice on the left. Uh, Fox News has become, has been for even longer a leading voice on the right. And increasingly CNN is perceived as an outlet of the left, uh, in part because Trump has, has uh, <clears throat> uh, campaigned very aggressively against CNN and called them fake news and gotten into fights with their reporters and, and it's become a big spectacle. But CNN is also partially responsible for Trump's rise uh, because they aired so many of his rallies without any editing in 2016. And they, they covered him and basically gave him free advertising throughout the, uh, the 2016 campaign. So he should really be thanking them um, for, for, for what they did. But look, even in print journalism, uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times are the, are the two biggest newspapers in America, but they also represent big cities that the rest of the country increasingly doesn't like. And Washington, the Washington Post is now owned by Jeff Bezos, who also owns Amazon and Whole Foods Market. So uh, it's natural for Republicans and President Trump to denigrate the, the Washington Post and the New York Times as partisan organizations uh, who have their own agenda. And in fact, a number of newspapers, I would argue, have delegitimized themselves by exclusively endorsing Democratic candidates over the past 20 years. And so when, when the New York Times runs a front page editorial against Trump, it delegitimizes the rest of, the, of their reporters' hard news. Uh, most Americans don't understand that there is a dividing line between the news staff at most newspapers and the editorial staff that is, that is putting, putting forward opinions that tend to be very critical of Trump and the right. And so if I had one recommendation for, for news organizations in America to try and regain some of the trust that's been lost, it would be to stop endorsing candidates altogether, get rid of the editorial section, and just report hard news. And from a more um, general or, let's say, <clears throat> existential almost uh, perspective, how do you see democracy working without a common understanding of what the world is? So without one agreed set of facts that we then interpret. So, so in, the, in the mid and long term, how do you think this media versus democratic election relationship can unfold and whether that is stable or is going to go into an, an even more unstabilizing sort of situation? Democracy in America, as we know it, is at risk uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that we can't agree on a common set of facts. Uh, one other factor that I didn't mention is that the, uh, the economic viability of small town newspapers and local news has declined in the past several decades. And so that means that uh, 
increasing percentage of Americans uh, uh, feels like the news is, is coming from a distant place and that they, they don't personally know a reporter who's giving them the news. And I think that's, that's also uh, decreased the trust. But the bigger threat to democracy, in my opinion, is the uh, geographic alignment of power in the country uh, right now, and particularly in the, in the US Senate. Every state in, in the US gets two Senate seats, regardless of its population. And the founders of the country intended for that structure to protect small states, right? Well, the problem is that now California has over 60 times the population of Wyoming, uh, which is a very beautiful state, and you should all go visit Yellowstone <laughs> National Park, but it doesn't have any people. Uh, and so you know, uh, it's, it's totally uh, unequal, and it's, it's gotten way out of proportion. And what we see is that the Democrats are doing very well in those big states like California and New York, but that doesn't win them any additional power in the Senate. And so Republicans have a natural advantage when it comes to winning more Senate seats. And that, that body has more power than the House of Representatives. It has the power to confirm Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court. We saw a big, big fight over the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh um, in October. It has the power to confirm uh, Trump's appointments for the cabinet. And his cabinet has been a revolving door. I mean, there's people leaving because of scandal every, every day, it seems. Uh, the Senate also uh, will, would have the final say over any impeachment proceeding. And on the question of whether Trump could be impeached and removed from office, which is question a lot, of, a lot of people are asking in America right now. Uh, it's not really a legal process because most legal scholars argue or say that the president cannot be indicted. But the only way that the president could, could be removed from his position would be through a, a political process in the US Senate. Well, you need 2 thirds of the Senate to vote to remove the president from office. And right now, there are only 47 Democrats. So they would need 20 Republican votes in the Senate. And, and that brings us to another very important development that hasn't gotten a lot of coverage in the US. But in this year's election, uh, the Republicans most critical of Trump, the, the ones who don't like him, they mostly got swept out of office. Uh, so in addition to this blue wave, we also had a red exodus of of Republicans who are anti-Trump who are no longer going to be in Congress. And in fact, the people who were elected on the Republican side to Congress this year are very, very loyal to Trump. And so it's, it has, he has the power to escape accountability, thanks to the Senate right now. All right. So perhaps we can take one last question. Um, how do you see the... Um, from your part, so let's change it around for a second. So tell us, what does a political analyst from Washington, D.C., uh, what does uh, he or she think when they look towards this part of the world, Europe? And what are the political, um, the political let's say, questions, doubts, um, the reflections when you look at what's going on in this part of the world? There's many things happening. You can see Brexit on 
the, 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 the British Chamber on fire right now, the Parliament without knowing what to do. We have populists rising in many different places. We have, of course, things happening in this part of the world as well. So what is, uh, what, what do you see and what are your so like, political thinking? Well, I've been warned uh, many times not to comment on Spanish politics, so I, <laughs> I won't even try to, uh, to, to address uh, some of the divisions here. But uh, when we look to Europe, we see some commonalities in terms of the, the populist movements that have taken hold. I think the main difference between our, our political structure and, and in much of Europe is that we have two political parties. And so Trump, for his movement to succeed, basically had to hijack or, or uh, overthrow one of the political parties uh, to, to gain a foothold, and he did. Um, whereas uh, it's much more factional uh, here, and uh, there, there are many parties competing for power. Um, the economies of, um, of, of various EU nations have a lot to do with the political circumstances in each one. It, uh, it seems as if Italy is in particular jeopardy at the moment. Uh, but. I'm, I'm also curious as to the, the future of France, uh, given what we've seen there in the, in the past month. Uh, and the biggest danger to the established order in France would seem to be if one candidate or one person or movement could capture the, the uh, inflamed passions on both the right and the left, uh, which clearly Le Pen was not able to do uh, in, uh, in, in the last presidential election. Uh, they're also a bit safeguarded from what we uh, saw with Trump because they have a runoff system. Um, I'm most mystified by, by the future of the UK and Brexit uh, because whenever I ask uh, a member of parliament or, or, uh, or anyone who's, uh, who's a top journalist in the UK, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure novel of six or seven different ways that Brexit could turn out. And I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen. Uh, so I, I watch with curiosity. All right. So thank you very much for, um, for this great conversation, uh, Mr. Wasserman, um, for transporting us for, for an hour to Washington, D.C. and looking into detail, in, in, in detail into, the, the, the Amer into American politics. Thank you. Well, come visit us anytime. Thank you very Thank much. You. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Isade, inspiring futures.